Welcome to the Meta View Podcast. Hear these non-fungible conversations. They will yield you great knowledge and perspective. But beware, they might also make your brain go boom. So watch your step, because this rabbit hole goes deep. Good luck and have fun. Welcome to the 25th episode of the MetaView podcast and today I have Pat who is sounds a lot like my name as well <laughs> but uh, Pat is a long time Taoist in the region from way before it was cool he's been a full-time Taoist since 2019 and been writing about using crypto for regeneration of earth's ecosystem and crypto like from the complexity point of view since at least 2020 and I thought it would be a great idea to have him on the podcast. So welcome, welcome, Pat. Yeah, thank you for, for having me today. So uh, you want to give a brief intro of like what uh, what got you into crypto, like what inspired you to join the space and what kind of background you come from? Yeah, ab absolutely. I would say that the, the story starts in January of 2017, uh, where, you know, I, I first discovered Ethereum and I sort of latched onto the technology very quickly. To me, it seemed like it would be a game changer. You know, all of the ideas, you know, whether, whether they're social ideas or and beyond financial ideas about what a blockchain could be, had a lot of appeal to me very, very quickly. So at that point, I uh, went into Ethereum, uh, let's say, and then, you know, benefited from that to the point where I could quit my job. I was in the, the advertising sector before that, you know, pay off quite a bit of school debt and, you know, actually just, just go full-time crypto, if you will, at that point. So the the work that you were doing at the time had absolutely nothing to do with crypto. So I wanted to ask you, like, what, what do you think allowed you to have this perspective of crypto? Like what uh, made it click for you versus other people who like might not have enough knowledge for this, uh, this concept to catch on to? Yeah, I, I would say it was completely random. I would say I, I wasn't any more or less aware of crypto than, than anyone else. You know, at the time that I came to understand what was going on in the crypto community, it was because of a Reddit post. So, you know, I was, I was on Reddit at work and, you know, I was browsing the front page and there was a post about Ethereum. And so I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do a deeper dive here, I, you know, out of a sense of, of curiosity, if kind of in that, that time, you know, five years ago, it was pretty exciting just to read about new technologies and, and how they'd be applied because things like AI were at the time very abstract, right? Like people today understand exactly what AI is because we 2022 was kind of this breakthrough moment for that technology. But I think before, you know, let's say COVID, you know, happened, uh, the future and the technologies of the future seemed very, very abstract and very exciting to read about and learn about. And, you know, maybe it is that sense of curiosity that, that brought me to learning about Ethereum at that point. And then uh, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons or the biggest way that your view of uh, crypto and uh, like these technologies in general 
changed over the past year, three years and over the past, not three years, but yeah, more than three years sounds like it. Some amount of time. I think the whole space has become much more professional. And I, I don't know if that's that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's it's very standard for you know any sort of industry to, to go through this, right? Your early adopters are always going to be ideologues. They're always going to be people who who believe, you know, and subscribe to a certain system of beliefs. And that system of beliefs is always going to be very, very different than what most people or how most people experience the world. And that's that's kind of what pushes change at the end of the day. And I, I think it's great <laughs> that this occurs. I think it's it's great that, you know, vanguards of early movers, you know, really exist in the technology sector. I don't look at that as a, as a bad thing per se. I think a lot of people take a very negative perspective of early movers. But, you know, we've moved very, very far away from sort of the, the, the crypto anarchist roots of what, you know, crypto is. We've gone all the way from, you know, this, this 2008 white paper from Satoshi, pardon me, not 2008, 2009, I believe, that was written with a, a high degree of skepticism about uh, institutions, namely financial institutions, you know, and how these institutions largely got off scot-free despite crashing, <laughs> destroying the, the finances of, of many people globally, uh, many, many retail folks around the world. And that sort of skepticism and that unwillingness to um, subscribe to, to the institutions as they exist today, I think that's not as prevalent in current movements in this space. I think, in a sense, through interacting with each other, we've sort of exhausted ourselves and we've, we've run around in circles. And, and I think they're good circles to run around in, you know, the, the early DAOs, there was a lot of um, discussion between folks around, you know, let's say mechanism design and, and, you know, how should a DAO, you know, go through the governance or consensus formation process. Uh, and there was an exploration of that design space and, and, you know, quite an appetite for experimentation, which was really lovely. And you look at what's going on today, you know, what's, what's going on today is more interfacing with traditional sectors. And I, I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. I think taking the technologies we have discovered and iterated on, you know, such as DAOs and bringing that to, you know, real world agri-food cooperatives or, um, you know, land management uh, associations, conservation associations, what have you, they could all vastly benefit from the, the Web3 tooling that is, exists today. And we can vastly benefit by continuously iterating on the UX, on the UI, you know, making this accessible, making, making the power and the promise of crypto uh, beautiful to uh, a larger audience that is not um, necessarily part of that early mover community or doesn't share in the same values that it has. And, you know, maybe, maybe for me, the biggest lesson, which, which is an ongoing lesson, is just being willing to dive headfirst into the application layer, into the social layer, uh, where UI and UX and, and these interfaces with 
folks that are not in crypto, that is where the majority of attention and funding, I think, should go to. And it hasn't necessarily gone to, at least in the, in the last couple of years or for, from what I've seen. I, I still see, you know, layer twos. I still see um, zero knowledge. I still see a lot of infrastructural sort of plays in this space and a lot of funding going towards these infrastructures and less interest and less financing going to actually interfacing with the real world. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to people like the whole space being uh, very profit driven and like this kind of real world stuff rarely can promise uh, the APYs that uh, like DeFi protocols or layer ones or layer twos can promise. I would say that uh, that this sort of anarchist spirit has, has remained, but uh, also that uh, like even you, like the people who like uh, you and I who joined uh, a bit later than the, like the initial wave of crypto people, who like uh, like I see them more as like they were anarchists, but they were more of like a anarcho-capitalist, so this like uh, free market side of things. Whereas the second wave was more about like okay, so maybe we should just use this technology and apply it to like public institutions and rebuilding institutions. That was uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Like that was you had in your bio for a long time, uh, building institutions, and uh, I feel like that's uh, yeah something that a lot of the space. It's not a sort of a quote-unquote mainstream uh, thought in the space, where it's like, even to this day, a lot of the thinking is around, okay, this DAO tech is like, okay, we're going to use DAOs to build uh, digital corporations and less about like, we're going to build digital institutions. And then I wanted to ask you about, uh, yeah, getting onto the post series that you wrote. And the first post is called uh, the, the Twilight of Neoliberalism. And uh, yeah, do you want to go into that? So I wrote this blog post titled The Twilight of Neoliberalism, which was the first in a series that I wrote in the summer of 2020 or Q2, Q3. And kind of the reason I, I wrote these blog posts was because I felt that I'd been in the space long enough to, to at least sort of understand some of these ideological, let's say, mimetics kind of moving between different participants in crypto and, you know, kind of the visions of the world that, that they were imagining. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to articulate a vision of the world myself. So I was quite moved to sort of say this technology, this is a potentially an institutional technology, very good one. And this is something that should be explored. This is something that should be not snuffed out by traditional institutions by any means, as, as a lot of new technologies can be for various reasons. But this is something that should be fully expressed and experienced and built upon in, in an open source manner. And, you know, just, just diving into this first post that I wrote about the, the twilight of neoliberalism, there is sort of a critique in there that where, where I want to address this concept of neoliberalism, which is a very infused term, because uh, for, for many folks, it's such an abstract concept that it's not necessarily a very useful semantic to employ. And for other folks, it is the, the demon. It is the devil himself and really the, the ruin of us all. Just, just probing and examining this term um, through a crypto lens, I, I think is extremely useful. But for me, there was always a more than crypto understanding. There was 
uh, sort of a, an understanding of the problems that that we're experiencing. So the the big sort of social level planetary scale issues that are going on. And so for me, I wanted to to fine tune that crypto lens. I wanted to to really look at what is going on through the issues that are being experienced. And you could say that those issues are being caused by neoliberalism. But I again, I, I don't know how useful that is to, to articulate. From my perspective, these issues are being caused by a particular topology of institutional actors. And in exploring that topology, I came to prescribe a sort of solution. I said, listen, a lot of what's going on is uh, top down. A lot of issues in the world are structural. Um, there is a structuralist element where something like the central bank or corresponding banks that you can pay your, your taxes in, in US dollar, you can pay your taxes in, in these correspondent bank monies, they issue a particular type of control over society. And for better or worse, that issuance also leads to certain types of negative externalities. And the lens, the crypto lens sort of immediately gravitates towards money. It, it gravitates towards what is the means of exchange and how is that means of exchange being controlled? How is it being you know, attenuated by these, these top-down institutions? And the truth is there are very specific financial flows. There are very specific incentives that these state-backed institutions, such as the central bank, uh, employ. And these specific incentives have specific outcomes. And so uh, reaching that conclusion, I sort of came to a certain prescription. And the prescription was, what we need is a new constellation of institutional actors operating from the bottom up, operating with more of a community gaze, with more of, let's say, an anarchist communalism than this top-down flow of money. And if we can build uh, you know, effective finance from the bottom up, finance that's liberated from these, these very controlling uh, incentives that you know, have certain outcomes, we'll have a different sort of outcome. As long as we exchange and use these bottom-up uh, financial artifacts in the most promising way possible. I think, you know, moving forward with that, that series, I, I started to articulate some ideas which would later uh, really <laughs> be uh, labeled refi ideas. And at the time, I, I didn't know what to call it, so I just called it um, ecotechnics. And really coming from this notion of probing a term, like really exploring a term, what, what does ecological techniques really infer? You know, mon money is a technical artifact, right? Like money, money is a technology um, that, that is used to solve uh, the, this trifecta problem of store of value and uh, medium of exchange and, and, and so forth. So understanding that, how can we create a money, uh, a bottom-up form of money, which you know has a different set of outcomes? And you know, I use this term ecotechnics because I think those outcomes need to be particularly mindful of the closed ecological system that is the Earth, right? That is the, the planetary that we're experiencing. And I, I really wanted to approach this problem of 
how do we create a money that that ultimately uh, works together within this the constraints that are imposed by this closed ecological system you know rather than a money that that ultimately exploits it and you know causes big systemic problems like what we're experiencing today you know in terms of pollution or you know an excess of of greenhouse gases being released into the atmosphere on a planetary scale you know or any number of these these externalities that are occurring so i think refi has really picked up on this this question and this prompt and refi has really run with it in a, in a pretty exciting way you know of course starting with uh, the those markets that are most easy to disrupt something like the carbon market right and the work that that clima dow and, and toucan protocol and and some of these very large early movers have accomplished to sort of disrupt these markets but i think there there's now a need to pass that and if i could extend this series further uh, you know part three i just kind of riff on these these themes a bit more about institutions and about you know what ecotechnics could achieve and what crypto can achieve once we really put our minds to it in this this sort of regenerative fashion but if looking back on that and sort of looking at at where we are today i would i would try to generalize things further i wouldn't try to speak in terms of regenerative finance i wouldn't try to speak you know through uh, an institutional or, or let's say a dow lens let's let's keep it really narrow i would try to speak in terms of what i would call process assets and this is this is an idea that i've really been playing with recently which is maybe undeveloped but uh you know i'll i'll try to throw out some of um some of this idea in a coherent way but the idea of a process asset is just an asset that is created through a proof of X. And really, Bitcoin is, is a good example to use because what is, what is Bitcoin really a proof of, right? Proof of work is too abstract, in my opinion. Proof of work is, it's not really expressing what, what Bitcoin is as a process asset. If you have Bitcoin on your balance sheet, what is the process that is being underwritten? And how does it interface with the underlying material reality that, that we're experiencing? And the truth is, Bitcoin is more of a proof of electrical spend, right? Bitcoin is, is created, it's the, the process that it is guaranteed upon creation of a Bitcoin is a certain amount of energy has been spent to create this thing and a lot of folks have rightfully criticized that process and you know especially in the regenerative finance side of things you know a lot of folks are, are more interested in proof of stake than this proof of electrical spend that is going on this or that the process being proof of electrical spend right but i think what we need to do now and what we need to fully explore is to, to go beyond proof of stake. I, proof of stake, again, going to what is a process asset. Proof of stake is a little more intuitive because it's really proof of stake. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is. I'm, I'm putting something up. I'm guaranteeing, providing security to the chain by providing an economic collateral that, that, that can be slashed. I am staking this thing. Perfect. Moving beyond these this proof of electrical spend or proof of stake, 
the types of processes that can be guaranteed by blockchains or by distributed ledger technologies or by zero knowledge proofs or you know in any number of various database uh, architectures i think that needs to be fully explored and i don't see any reason why we can't have proof of biodiversity increase proof of water quality increase proof of uh, carbon sequestration you know that's Ultimately, that's that's what a, a carbon offset is supposed to be at the end of the day. It's just the process by which that's the, the MRV process that confirms that that designation just isn't so great as, as we're learning. Can blockchain in, improve that MRV process? I, I think so. I think anytime you take something out of the hands of a, of a monopoly, something out of the hands of a top-down actor, and you bring it to uh, coalitions of, of bottom-up participants, I think actually what we see is the quality of that thing increase rather than decrease. I think if the state of Brazil is not issuing carbon credits or offsets or what have you, but rather bottom-up coalitions of folks who are intimately familiar with their commons and with their community, and want to create proofs of X that, that provide a certain level of guarantee or accountability for assets that they themselves create, I think we'll see a lot more accuracy in the types of process assets that, that they are ultimately minting. And when corporates or when you know central banks or, or banks or DAOs or you know, any number of institutions put these types of process assets on their balance sheets, they will have uh, a higher level of guarantee that these processes are occurring in the real world. This proof of biodiversity increase or you know, any sort of proof of X, which which is what we want to see. Uh, yeah, I was actually just reading a post today about how these technologies are going to allow us to measure and account for uh, and quantify impact directly. And then we can build uh, societies that are kind of uh, based directly on impact and this uh, intricate web of uh, verification and uh, validation between uh, this like decentralized network rather than just relying on crude metrics of market signals and uh, rewarding those who just extract the most profit because uh, profit is easiest to measure. I think, you know, it's it's worth mentioning that there doesn't necessarily need to be such a strong collide between earning profit and you know creating profit in in society and creating impact in society i think really th there's an important design space to be explored where we try to figure out how to get the incentives right where doing good for one's community or for the environment or you know, improving the, the ecosystem services that a, a particular territory has to offer. We need to sort of figure out a way that that does become profitable because absence that, you know, design process, we, we are perhaps creating assets that um, disinterest, um, for the most part, funds and disinterest investment. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I see this more so as finding like the middle ground between, you know, like democratic bureaucracy that uh, can go corrupt by uh, not making an impact and without having any accountability mechanisms versus the market solutions which go too far on the profit extraction point. And then like, if we can find this middle ground between uh, having organizations that are kind of in the public or the commons domain, but they're actually 
uh, sustainable and they're making uh, enough profit to like do what they need to do and pay people to make this impact so that people can actually live. I think uh, that's going to go a, a long way. But uh, yeah, like having these mechanisms then allows people to have more trust into if impact of these organizations were better uh, tracked and uh, easier to uh, see, then it would also be like less... Uh, people would be less avoidant of uh, donating to good causes or even just like paying taxes. Like right now you pay taxes and you have no idea where the money goes, like how much is lost because uh, just the people who are supposed to be making impact aren't actually making impact. And then having this uh, network then allows us to create these value flows. Like you, like you were saying, like you have these uh, processes that go to people who are making an impact to the organization or whatever cause. And then after the impact has been made, like after the like this cumulative process of organization making an impact, then you can put in money and be sure that it goes to the right actors because there's this whole uh, network and uh, knowledge of like actual impact making. Yeah, I, I think there's two things or maybe three things, but I'll, I'll start with two that are especially prevalent when it comes to this impact making or these these proofs of impact. And, you know, just just like you described is this idea of transparency, this idea of, of greater visibility and understanding as to the behavior and the results of a, uh, you know, a certain impact focused event or action, uh, you know, done by a community or a person or an institution. But I think the other thing that, that blockchain actually really helps with and can help with is determining what kind of impact we want in, in the first place. And this is this is actually kind of a fun thought problem that I like to put out there because this is not something that, that people necessarily think about. And I like to focus on this this little thought problem of rhino conservation. So or let's let's do hippos because they're 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 sort of aggressive creatures and you know not not everyone wants to have a hippo in their backyard. So when we when we talk about hippo conservation, we need to talk about impact goals. We need to talk about what is the desired output that socially we want to have because we need to answer the question how many hippos should exist? How many hippos should we conserve? How impactful is it for us to have 2,000 hippos versus 10,000 hippos? And I think blockchain and I think you know transparent social choice mechanisms, signaling mechanisms can help us in this process as well because it's, it's not as easy as saying, oh, we're going to create proofs of impact for hippo conservation. We also need to decide collectively just, just exactly how many hippos are going to be conserved and how that relates to, to the broader ecology. So there, there is sort of this pulling and consensus formation that needs to be built, a platform for it needs to be built that is quite intuitive, where people can collaboratively decide on, on these types of difficult questions. Right, and that's a great point. Platforms like Gitcoin do, do a lot in that regard, in that like, as long as people are donating more and more money, it means that they want this sort of outcome, like... If we are preserving more and more rhinos and there's more and more people donating to the preservation of rhinos, there's like good chances that people want that impact and that, that impact will be made. But this also like goes back to relying kind of on uh, financial uh, signals, which might necessarily be like scientifically backed. Uh, so like it also goes back to, to this, like uh, examining all of this through like complexity and uh, like really having this 
world system view and doing a lot of analysis of like what are the things that we need to regenerate to have uh, like stable ecosystems and all that sort of stuff, which is, yeah, <laughs> hard problems. It's it's a very hard distribution problem, right? Because, uh, you know, people may want, you know, for instance, more polar bears, right? And polar bears, are they're very popular species that receives a lot of financial attention. Um, but there are higher leverage species and higher leverage efforts that, that could receive, you know, that same funding that is going to polar bears. So I think defining the types of institutions, like, could we have an institution that is more concerned with managing all of the species of, of a particular area of Arctic tundra than a single institution that, or, or, you know, a coalition of institutions that only concerns themselves with polar bears? I think the, the former is a much more efficient design uh, than the latter and will make better distribution choices when it comes to the, the way that finance moves through it and the the types of things it can do with that finance, you know, the range of processes that it can, you know, invoke in terms of conservation and restoration and sort of ecological engineering, if you will. I think that is um, far more important than just having an organization fixated on on this particular apex predator. Yeah, definitely. Goes then to the to the importance of like collaborating between all of these different uh, projects and like in this case, con- conservation projects, because okay, we have this uh, grant for polar bears, but yeah, then it makes more sense. Okay, this grant is very successful. Then we should get some more conservationists who are going to yeah, like either join this project with other projects and uh, yeah, like at least talk to the people who are uh, working on the, the whole, uh, that part of the biosphere, like conservation of that part. But uh, yeah, like I'm just excited we can get to the, to the first step and then all of these other problems <laughs> obviously emerge where it's like, okay, so we are, okay, now we have organizations and the like economy that's more geared towards making an impact. Now, like now that this infrastructure exists and all these projects exist, we can focus on like making sure that it's the right impact and not just that there's stuff being made. Yeah, and and more than right impact, that there's liquidity, you know, in impact formation. Because if you look, for instance, at uh, the voluntary carbon offset market, the biggest disruption that crypto introduced was liquidity. It was liquidity, and it was global access to carbon and speculation on, you know, voluntary carbon offsets. And all of that happened through the process of tokenization. All of that happened through, you know, something that we would consider to be a very basic mundane thing in the crypto world, right? Like, oh, I just, I tokenized this thing. You know, tokenized stocks are not, this is a business model that has been explored at at length. And, you know, you have whole conferences on you know security summits on how, how you would do this right but the process of tokenization actually brings a plethora of benefits to any market that it you know in, introduces itself to this this mechanism design so i think we can ask ourselves what what are other places where, where tokenization can have a huge benefit to you know achieving some sort of real world objective more than just what exists today. And I think that's the cutting edge of crypto economics today is is really evaluating that question. Again, going back to this idea of process assets and you know what sorts of tokens can we yet create and what benefits will they incur by taking processes and you know becoming abstractions of these processes that guarantee that they occurred. 
that's what I wanted to say about uh, like tokenizing stuff. That that's one of the things that really excites me as well. Like this idea of tokenizing uh, not just carbon credit, but tokenizing uh, resources in general, and then uh, being able to use that as uh, like for value exchange, and then we can stop being so dependent on doing everything uh, like with money because kind of as things become liquid, everything is money. Like everything is kind of directly can be turned into anything else pretty much. Well, I, I think the inverse is equally true, right? All all money is a process asset. When you're using the the US dollar, you are sort of underwriting a particular agenda by American institutions. You're sort of saying, well, listen, you know, this this asset that I'm I'm using or I'm saving is a sort of an indirect representation of the spending and the the objectives and the the world building done by the this this particular government. And I think for a very long time, we didn't really have much choice as to what assets we have, what monies do we do we hold for ourselves? You know, there were bonds, there's stocks, but you know, what what is a stock? You know, a, a stock is just building a particular type of business with a particular type of, of business objective and wanting to see that succeed. That's the process that, that owning a stock ultimately facilitates. So, Really, there's this broad range of design in assets that should be explored and more of a diversity in design where we're moving away from state agendas or the agendas of the FANGs and you know, the your NASDAQ uh, listed companies or your bond market or, or what have you towards processes that we care about and that we want to see manifest in the world. Right. Even just increasing the liquidity of all the assets we currently have and then allows us to have like, I mean, money is used for just exchange. And then in this case, we just can exchange things directly and everything goes through. Like you can exchange for any asset to any other asset through Uniswap when you can go route through, I don't know how many different assets. Well, well gatekeeping liquidity has always been a way of, of monopolizing power, Right. When you look at, for instance, the U.S. Treasury's market, a lot of authority in that the United States imposes, a lot of the financial authority imposes on the rest of the world is through the provision of liquidity. And this is why you have swap lines that the, the U.S. has structured with other central banks. You know, this is, this is a type of hegemony that is, I think, largely unrecognized, this, this hegemony of you know, a particular sovereign sitting at the top of, of the monetary hierarchy or the money hierarchy and sort of exploiting that position, exploiting sort of the, the infinite liquidity that, that such a position offers. When you look at U.S. debt, that's how li liquidity is created, right? Like that's, that's in a lot of ways uh, the source of liquidity in the world. And that debt is more or less internalized because of this global preferencing for the US dollar because it is so liquid because these these deep markets exist that are in many ways protected and you know managed by the US or US authorities so liquidity is a source of power in this world and by by opening up you know the some uniswap is is a major disruptor and uh, very, very exciting because we are sort of like freely allowing for any asset to move into any other asset. And as such, we're, we're decentralizing a lot of authority from institutions as they exist today, simply by doing so, 
simply by having the option of doing so, simply by being able to to make markets ourselves and to create deep liquidity in the markets that we we co-make, you know, and the, the liquidity pools that we become LPs for. So I find this all very, very exciting from an institutional perspective as it's, you know, taking a historically monopolizable form of authority and giving it to regular people to, to do what they will with it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, this rabbit hole goes deep, but uh, zooming out a bit, uh, how would you describe your political philosophy? That's a, that's a good question, because I found over the years myself gravitate in a lot of different directions at, you know, <laughs> at the same time sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's very hard for me to, to comment on, you know, sort of one particular ism, you know, I, I think... Uh, whether it's liberalism or conservatism or what have you, because it's, I, I would say my political philosophy is very dependent on which social, financial, scientific issue that, that we're, we're trying to discuss. And, and I think this is true of most people, by the way. I think if you take the average person and you try to understand their beliefs, you'll find completely contradictory beliefs depending on what particular thing that you're evaluating or, or looking at or what particular subject you're, you're asking them about. And a lot of politicians that, that are elected today to positions of power, they, they just sort of build coalitions from the most commonly held beliefs of certain groups of people in society. But that doesn't necessarily reflect at all the diversity of each individual person and the, and the beliefs that they hold. I see that as... as kind of a problematic aspect of the democratic process. I see the establishment of parties with very monolithic platforms to really be problematic, you know, when when it comes to the formation and consensus making for large states or for, you know, very very large societies. I think a lot of voices go unheard and if I did have a politics, I would argue for uh, greater localism, I would argue for more federalization of authority at the most local level. But even then, w- once you start to make those arguments, you get very you get challenged in very interesting ways. One, one such challenge would be, oh, you think things should be federalized. Well, what happens if a municipality implements something like Sharia law, right? And that that tension in society, is being experienced today in a lot of European nations where you do have local enclaves that are, you know, Muslim majority or Islamic majority. And you'll have a particular way that they want to live, or at least the majority has a particular way that that majority wants to live. To what extent are those the powers for community building and enforcement of norms and laws in a community? How much of that is, is, should be decentralized and what is sort of a universal human rights or what is sort of a, a universal, let's say, authority that, that people should, should have for themselves. And maybe today the, the biggest tension I see in politics is between kind of this relativist perspective of different cultures have you know different norms and different ways of doing things versus this universalist perspective of you know certain rights should apply to everyone. Uh, regardless of what culture they're from, you know, maybe we could you, we could call that uh, the Star Trek perspective or something. And I I would say if I did have a politics, it would be more of the the universalist politics than than sort of the relativist politics. But 
you can also have a universalist sort of understanding or political opinion and simultaneously think that certain issues should be localized and that certain issues should should follow like certain principles of good governance. And maybe just to riff on like one of those principles, it would be something like uh, if you are subject to the consequences of a particular system being governed in a particular way, then you should probably have some sort of governance over that system. And if I, I'm going to use this very specific example here because it's fresh in my mind from YouTube. Uh, if you look at the the nation of Iraq, a lot of its water supply comes from rivers that originate in Turkey. And Turkey has dammed most of those rivers, and Turkey controls the flow of water for those, those rivers. And Iraq is subject to the governance of Turkey over these rivers, which is very, very harmful to the Iraqi people. You know, Tur Turkey is producing quite a, a strong amount of energy for itself by, by damming these rivers, but that has downstream consequences, quite literally, downstream consequences. Now, if we apply principles of good governance, of commons governance, uh, you know, if you are subject to the consequences of, of what's going on, then realistically, the Iraqi communities that, that live on these rivers should be co-governing some aspect of that dam production or, or should be receiving some sort of benefit from the damming of those rivers. And we don't see that today. We don't see that principle applied today because other principles, such as the, the principle of the hegemony of the, the nation state, take precedence over um, you know, principles of good governance of the commons. So I would say that, uh, again, if, if I had a political leaning, I would argue that if you are subject to certain consequences, you should have somewhat of a voice into how something is governed. Yeah, as Aaron of Governance says, like anything that governs you, you should be able to govern but it's yeah, it's really a fine balance and depends on a lot about uh, just the the context of the situation, because like like this uh, globalism can turn totalitarian and like uh, localism can turn can turn into one village polluting the river that affects another village downstream. And that that to me sort of invites a design problem that an institution can help resolve. It, to, to me, like these tensions in society are opportunities to create more effective governance bodies. And as sort of like crypto practitioners, we should look towards those tensions and we should ask ourselves, can Web3 be useful? Can a, can a DAO be useful here in helping resolve, you know, this, this underlying conflict between these different sets of actors? And, you know, I think if we really put our noggins to it, uh, we sit down and ask these questions and go on the ground and speak to regular people, speak to, you know, people who are having these experiences and are experiencing these conflicts. I think we actually can articulate pretty interesting out of the box solutions and resolutions in terms of institutional design that didn't exist before. But I would say regenerative finance is asking some of these questions presently in a very, very good way. I think that in the years to come, as real world assets become kind of a growing trend in crypto and DAOs start to have more of a, a legal footing and a, you know, a presence in the real world, I think we're on the right track, but we've, we've just really scraped the surface of, of what's possible and what types of problems we should start thinking about and what types of systemic issues deserve our attention and we potentially have maybe not pure, complete solutions, but uh, therapies or, or, you know, remedies for, and to, to some regard. Right. Yeah, definitely. 
And yeah, then to to close it off since nearing to an hour, then uh, I want to go a bit deeper into into this, into like what's your hope for the future of this uh, intersection of uh, crypto and uh, real world. When I think about the future of crypto and you know kind of the way it interfaces with the real world, I think my, my greatest hope is that that distinction becomes less pronounced. My greatest hope is that we don't we don't have to sort of in, a, in the way that we talk to each other, we have to say, oh, this is a real world problem. There's sort of this underlying assumption or underlying uh, sort of tacit uh, explanation that every time we say crypto, we're referring to like some virtual domain, like some some other some some metaverse on the horizon that you know doesn't affect the real world. And I would I would like to close that distinction, or I'd like to see that distinction closed over time, where when we refer to crypto or we refer to Web three, we are simultaneously referring to more than a virtual, a predominantly virtual domain that we are referring to entire communities in you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of real world communities. And again, listen to me say that real world communities that are interfacing and using this technology in a way that that benefits themselves and benefits the planet. I think if we can succeed in closing that semantic divide or you know if that divide closes i don't think we necessarily have individually or or any one organization i don't think we we necessarily can kind of like force semantics to be used in a certain way and i i kind of i I get a kick out of people who who try to, to to do so but i think if we all sort of ideologically pursue problems and create solutions and think about problems that bridge this semantic gap, over time it will become less jarring. And we won't have to, in every sentence or or every time we speak, every time we address an audience at any crypto conference, we might not even need to call it a crypto conference. We would just call it a, a conference about the Euphrates watershed. And crypto just happens to be a part of that conference because a DAO has been created that bridges uh, Turkish and Iraqi interest, um, you know, for management of this particular watershed. And that DAO is just a very normalized institution. Like there's nothing particularly unique about it. It just, crypto is a part of what it is. And once that happens, I or if that happens, I, I would be very, very pleased with the future. I'd be very pleased with this movement that, that has grown, that I've I've grown with myself in the past five years, that deserves to continue to grow, that deserves to have its say in local and global politics, and hopefully does some interesting things in the years to come. Right. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, there's this uh, trend with the metaverse and how uh, crypto will be useful in the metaverse. And like, yeah, I was actually also, as I was writing the, the metagame white paper yesterday, and then, yeah, one of the things that I wrote is just that, like, I also see this, uh, like, the success story of uh, Web3 is when we stop using the word Web3. Like, when the, all these crypto tools and Web3 and DAOs and all of this really just moves into the background of, of how we do things. So, like, we want to solve problem X and we're going to use this set of tools. Like, it's not about Web3, it's not about crypto at all. It's just, like, it just so happens to be that a lot of these tools that we're using are like working on top of this technology. A lot of what determines whether an idea or something has become successful is if the distinctions of that thing dissolve and become seemingly implicit to society. 
And I, you know, that's, that's exactly what you're, you're touching on. And I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely great. Awesome. We definitely have, uh, we definitely share a lot of the, a lot of similar thinking and I'm glad that we finally got to meet. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for coming on. And uh, this was a, a great episode. I think the people will enjoy it. And uh, I hope also that you will consider coming to MetaFest in Croatia, which is a, a festival slash conference for Taoist and regions. I was going to send you a link uh, after the after you do the episode, but I also saw that Jessica already added you to the Telegram group. Definitely send me a link and I'll definitely take a look. Awesome. All right. Yeah, well, uh, thank you again and uh, have a great day. Enjoy your day. <laughs>